Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. Hey, this is Stephen Talty, the host of this podcast, Good Assassins Hunting the Butcher. This podcast project came out of my work on a related book called The Good Assassin. If you want to explore other parts of this story, check it out. It's not just a book version of the podcast. I spend time on different aspects of the mission. There are chapters diving into World War II history that we didn't cover in the podcast, and the book works as a kind of a companion to the listening experience. You can purchase a copy of The Good Assassin on Amazon, Apple Books, and on bookshop.org. Thanks. A note. This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence. Listener's discretion is advised. Mio was happy to be back in Paris. His children had missed him. His young son, in fact, had asked so many times when his father was coming home that Mio's wife arranged for a friend to call and pretend to be her husband. But when the boy got on the line, he knew the voice on the other end wasn't Mio's, and he'd been crushed. So he was overjoyed that his father was finally home. But Mio's mission wasn't completed. The final act was still to take place, in Uruguay. And in Yuri's apartment in the heart of Paris, the team started putting the pieces together. (laughs) 
I'm Stephen Talty, and this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. We must thwart this shameful process. The end of a trail of blood and horror. The end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. Episode 8 The Ticking Clock. There was a lot of work to do. Yareev had collected all the letters and telegrams that Mio had sent from the field. Mio had brought back maps of Montevideo and Sao Paulo, lots of information on hotels and renting cars and the vacation home market. He'd written down exactly what he needed to go through passport control and what problems the other team members might find. Nothing could be left to chance. There was a file on Zuckers, what he was like, what he didn't like, what his habits were. But they still didn't have a place where the assassination could be carried out. They didn't even know how it was going to be carried out. On the trip back to France, Neo had given some thought to that. He was very straightforward about it. He later wrote in his memoir. I pointed out that the distant sniper shot was not, uh, in my opinion at least, a suitable option, both because of the noise and because it would not allow us to give him the coup de grace. I also rejected the use of poison. I gave a detailed account of the so-called drinking night I had set up at the Japanese nightclub. I mentioned his strange habit of sipping his drink in an ever so slow, almost uh, nerve-wracking fashion. The sniper shot would have been a possibility if they'd been carrying out the assassination on their home soil. But the team had to factor in their need to escape. It was always a temptation to devote more time to figuring out how to eliminate a target than to figuring out how to get away once you'd done it. They couldn't fall into that trap. Mossad wanted everyone to suspect that Israel had carried out the killing. But it didn't want any of its agents to actually get caught. That could lead to interrogations and other things. What they were doing wasn't legal. Zuckers wasn't going to get a trial or have a lawyer like Adolf Eichmann had got after Mossad kidnapped him. They didn't want Mossad to be the story. They wanted Zuckers to be the story. So the team members had to carry out the killing, gather their belongings, and head to the airport. They had to get on the plane and get safely back to Europe before Zucker's body was discovered. That influenced how the assassination would be carried out. It couldn't be public. It couldn't be loud. And the body had to be left out of sight so that someone didn't stumble on it and raise the alarm before the agents had time to leave the country. A hotel room, for example, was out. The maid would find the body too quickly. Neil gave the finale a lot of thought. It was his call. He'd met Zuckers. He had a better sense of what would work than you even the others who'd been busy training. But by the time he met with the team, Neo had an idea. 
I believe that the best way is to lure him into a house where an elimination unit will be waiting for him. From my intense and intimate acquaintance with the late one, and from the numerous hours we have spent together, which have included many visits to various rental sites, I'm convinced he will enter any house I do. He trusts me. But Gad Shimron, the former Mossad agent and military historian, learned later what Mia wasn't aware of at the time. Zuckers did not trust Anton Kunzla as much as he believed. Zuckers, till the last moment, was not fully sure that uh, Mio is kosher. He took a picture of Mio, gave it to his wife, and told her, if something happens to me, if I don't come back, this is the killer. This is the murderer. He, he killed me. It was a plan, but it wasn't foolproof. Zuckers had already shown that he was suspicious. He seemed to trust Mio, and some little thing would send him off and they were almost back to zero again. That was the first risk. The second was Zucker's physical strength. Mio knew that Yariv and the team members were getting tired of his warnings about how tough the butcher was, but he didn't care. He was the lead agent. This was his mission. You had to see the guy to understand. He looked like a competitive weightlifter. So Mio kept at it. He told Yariv again about how Zucker's was a highly mistrustful man acutely vigilant, armed with a gun, and of great physical strength. Yariv nodded, but he was probably thinking Mio's getting a little paranoid himself. Mossad agents were war veterans. They'd killed before. The butcher was 64 years old. They would take care of him without any problem. Yariv told Mio he'd done a good job. But for the kill team, getting the butcher inside the house, that was the tricky part. They would take care of the rest. If four strong Israelis couldn't handle a senior citizen, well, then Mossad was in trouble. Yariv went over Mio's plan and quickly approved it. And he confirmed one important detail. Before the sentence was carried out, the team would read out a verdict in the name of the 30,000 men, women, and children that Zuckers had helped kill. It would be like a judge's sentence. It would show the world the Israelis had given serious thought to why Zuckers had to die. In no way could the execution be equated with the death of his victims. They had to show that they'd carefully considered his crimes. This was justice, not vengeance. This raised an intriguing possibility. If they were going to take the time to read the charges, maybe Zuckers would respond. Maybe he'd even defend himself. Maybe, I thought, he'd tell the Israelis why he'd done what he'd done. In my quest to know the motives behind his actions, this would be a perfect time for Zuckers himself to tell his story. Or, if he was truly an anti-Semite at heart, maybe facing five Jewish assassins would reveal that. Maybe he'd shout some abuse at the team. It would at least be a clue. But one thing was for sure. With this plan, there would be a chance for Zuckers to finally tell the truth. Mia was satisfied. All the work he'd put in had been vindicated. They were going ahead with his plan. The debate in the German parliament was coming up in a few months. They all hoped a successful mission would influence it. 
On the 9th of November, a letter arrived at the Rotterdam P.O. box that Mio had set up months earlier. It was from Zuckers. Following your request, I hereby enclose my flight ticket from Sao Paulo to Montevideo and back, as well as a few other receipts for personal expenses. I hope you arrive well in Rotterdam and that all is well with you. Hoping to see you soon. This friendship, Herbert Zuckers. The team was pleased. The butcher was taking the bait. But Mia waited over a month to send a reply. He wanted it to seem like he was a busy man putting deals together. He couldn't appear to be too eager. Dear Herbert, I thank you for your letter and for the receipts you sent. Everything here is running as it should, and as far as business is concerned, I have nothing to complain about. My associates are very pleased with the outcome of the trip to South America, to Brazil and Uruguay. I intend to return to South America in the coming weeks in order to realize and implement various investment plans. I should therefore be grateful to you if you could manage soon after receiving this letter to make the necessary arrangements to Chile and Uruguay. I'm enclosing a banker's check for $100 to cover your expenses. Please inform me by telegram when all the necessary papers are in your hands and you are ready for the trip. A happy new year to you and your family. Hope to see you soon. Your friend, Anton Kunzle. Yariv arranged with Mossad headquarters to provide new identities for the other team members. Fake names, passports, and backstories that would give them a reason for being in Uruguay. The men spent hours memorizing the details. They learned a few key phrases in Spanish and Portuguese in case they were stopped by the police or had some other problem. The four team members were almost done with their training in Krav Maga, the Israeli fighting system. Emmy Lichtenfeld was working them hard. Mia wasn't part of the training. His job was to get the butcher into the room. That was it. They practiced the same maneuvers over and over again. Watching the sessions, Neil later wrote he thought the instructor had the graceful movements of a dancer. Lichtenfeld's feet slid across the floor soundlessly as he avoided knife thrusts and clubs swinging at his head. But according to Emi Lichtenfeld's student, Eyal Yanilov, his graceful nature would never have been mistaken for weakness. So, Emi was definitely with very high level of refined movements. So like Muhammad Ali said, Emi was doing the same. Dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Then 55, the Krav Maga teacher could look a little scary in his white karate tunic. He had a glass eye, and half his face was frozen from an injury he'd sustained on his journey to Palestine. He spoke in a deep baritone, but with a slight lisp caused by an injury to the left side of his mouth. Krav Maga did require slight adjustments for the mission. Having been invented to save Jewish lives, it was defensive in nature. Its core philosophy was, do whatever is needed to cause as much damage as possible to your attacker and get away safely. But in Uruguay, the Mossad men would be the aggressors. Eyal knows how Emi would have instructed the team to locate the target's weak spots. He would tell them, 
to strike to the most sensitive points, to be very efficient in their striking with open hand or with closed fist. So, hit very strongly to the knee, to the solar plexus, to the floating ribs, liver and spleen. Go up at this line of the neck, front of the neck, back of the neck is extremely efficient. Go to the line of the jaw to cause concussion. Go to the line of the eyes, especially the temples. So these are strikes that will cause concussion and will make the person you know, groggy, fall down. They practiced disarming a target, as Mio had told them Sukers carried a gun everywhere. In Krav Maga, if there was a gun involved in a fight, you always assumed it would be fired. But the Mossad agents wanted to immobilize Sukers before he could draw it. So they practiced a blow from the back they hoped would bring the butcher down. Al can imagine what the team was going through. He vividly remembers how hard Emi pushed him in his own training. He said, stop, not good, do again. Not good, good, do again. Not good, do again. 20 times, not good, do again. I didn't even know what he wanted from me. What should I do in that sense? Until I understood, but eventually. So when you think about it, it's just, you have a job. You have to do something. You're not doing good enough. Do better. That's it. Yariv, Kafir, Amit, and Sudid practiced kick after kick. They paired off and rained blows down on the head of their opponents. Lichtenfeld believed the knuckles were too delicate for a good smash to the face. He preferred the meaty base of the hand, or even better, the elbow. Balance was key. Kick, return to position. Kick, return to position. Kick. They drilled and drilled. What made the experience that much more exhausting for the men was that Mio wasn't even doing the knee thrust and the rest of it kept reminding them they were about to face a raging animal. Remember, the late one is a strong man and he's always armed. Even Yariv grew impatient with him. Mio exaggerates a bit. We'll overcome Tsukus without any problem. It was Mio's turn to be annoyed. The Israelis always believed they could solve any problem. Typical Sabra bullshit. He was worried they were going to mess up his operation. Are you curious about something you've heard on Hunting the Butcher? and want to know more? Is there something I haven't covered that you wish I would? I want to hear from you. We've set up an email address for listeners to send us questions about the show. We've received some amazing, thoughtful questions so far, and we'd love to hear more. Record yourself asking your question. Include your name and where you're from, and we'll try to answer your question on a future episode. The email address is huntingthebutcher at diversionpodcasts.com. Record yourself asking a question and email it to me. The Voice Memos app on iPhone works well for recording yourself. Again, the email address is huntingthebutcher at diversionpodcasts.com. That's podcasts, plural. I'm looking forward to hearing your questions. Thanks. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner gene eugene fodor gene was booted Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! 
I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano. Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yerevan the others took all of Mio's notes, the telegrams and letters, his thoughts on the kill method, and honed them into a working paper. It included maps, even timetables to and from different landmarks in Montevideo. They looked at the maps, searching for the right neighborhood to rent a house in. They bought summer clothes that would be right for Uruguay, and they went to various banks and changed money for Uruguayan pesos. Then they began to look for a staging ground for the operation, a place where they could fly into, get organized, and prepare for D-Day. They didn't want to be hanging around Uruguay for weeks, attracting attention. They chose Buenos Aires. Mio never revealed the reason why they chose it, but my theory is that it was a big city, cosmopolitan. It got visitors from all over the world. They wouldn't stick out there, so it was a good place to lay low. All of this work and planning took about two months. The world took no notice of their mission. The Beatles released a new album, Beatles for Sale, and college students in America were staging protests against the Vietnam War. As for France, it was preparing for the Winter Olympics. No one paid any mind to the men entering and leaving the little apartment on the Avenue de Versailles. On January 20th, another letter arrived in the Rotterdam P.O. box. Herr Kunzler, I completed all the arrangements as you asked. I have the passport, including the visas for Uruguay and Chile. Waiting for your arrival and for further details concerning our joint business trip. With friendship, Herbert Zuckers. In the note, Zucker seemed a little more nervous than in the previous one. Did the line about waiting for further details mean that he was having doubts? If the details weren't what he expected, would he refuse to leave Brazil? Nobody knew. The agents booked their airline tickets. Each member would be traveling separately. They didn't want to look like a team. Before their departures, the five men met for a final time in the Paris apartment. They went over the plan. They double-checked and triple-checked everything. There was nothing left to do in Paris. It was a solemn moment. We were all aware that we were going to take the life of a man. But none of us had any doubt that this was the just punishment for a sadistic criminal. Mio sat down and wrote out a telegram for Zuckers, including all his travel plans. Then the members poured some drinks and made a toast. Best of luck, Yarev told them. 
he wasn't much of a speech giver. The men kept their private thoughts to themselves. They were eager to get going. Three days later, Mio boarded his flight to Sao Paulo. He was going to Brazil first to reconnect with Zuckers. The other members would fly out later. Mio planned on meeting Zuckers in the airport transit lounge before flying on to Buenos Aires. He had to make sure the butcher was all in. After 12 hours in the air, the plane landed. Mio waited until after the other passengers got out, then walked toward the airplane door. At the top of the jetway, he was heading down the stairs, lost in his own thoughts. I heard Zucker's familiar voice. Hello, Herr Anton, I am here. I looked down to the bottom of the stairs, and what did I see? Herbert Zucker's wearing a colorful tie, holding something black in one hand, and waving happily with the other. That black thing in the butcher's hand? That was a camera. He was filming Mio as he arrived. How on earth did he manage to get in here? I wondered. This was a restricted area, and we were supposed to meet in the transit lounge. When Mio realized what the black object was, he was shocked. This meant that Zuckers was actually filming me, immortalizing my image on film. Instinctively, I raised my hand as if in greeting, but the motion was actually intended to hide from the camera lens some of my more distinguishing features. It was a disaster. Zuckers had sprung a trap. When you're undercover, you want there to be no record of your actual self in the mission. The documents all have your cover name, not your real one. If you're photographed, you want to be wearing your disguise. This was a time before the widespread use of surveillance cameras. Mio thought he was safe. But now the butcher, he had him down on film. It was bad. That was only half of it. The other half was, why was Zuckers filming him in the first place? If the two men had been old friends, Mio might have passed it off as his buddy wanting a memento of their trip. But that wasn't it. This was Zuckers being paranoid again. He wanted to film as evidence, just in case Kunzla was up to no good. Zucker said he was ready to become partners, but clearly he still had his doubts. He'll never be rid of his suspicions, I thought with concern. I was fully convinced that this was yet another one of Zucker's security exercises. One false move that he might interpret as my attempt to hide from the camera all my months-long efforts to win his trust would come to nothing. And in fact, Mio was right. The butcher didn't trust him fully. Later, his wife Milda told police what happened when Zuckers returned home. My husband told me that he had filmed Kunzla coming off the plane. He emphasized that if anything bad were to happen to him in the near future, then it was this man, seen on the film waving at Herbert, who would bear direct and sole responsibility for it. The film and the stills taken from it would haunt the Mossad agent for years. When I discussed this with Gad Shimran, he mentioned how significant this became. Uh, this 
photo for many years, uh, Amigo told me that every time he crossed the border somewhere on the wall, there was a big Interpol poster wanted for murder with uh, his uh, picture as Künstler taken by suspicious Zukunft. So Mio is coming down the steps of the jetway at the airport in Sao Paulo. He's holding up his hand like he's waving it at Zuckers, a friendly greeting. But in reality, he's trying to block the view of his face from the camera. He's trying to look smooth, natural, but it isn't working. He looks awkward and nervous. He's realized that Zuckers has outsmarted him. Mio finally made it down to the bottom of the jetway, and Zuckers dropped the camera to his side. He greeted the agent, and the two went into the transit lounge to talk. Mio's flight to Buenos Aires was leaving soon, so they only had a few minutes. They ordered drinks, and Mio tried to get back on track. He told Zuckers he had some good news. His partners had decided to invest heavily in South America, hundreds of thousands of dollars at the very least. And they'd agreed to bring Zuckers on board. If he played his cards right, he would soon be a rich man. Zuckers didn't react the way Mio had hoped. He said he had a problem. It turned out that he hadn't been telling the truth in his telegram. His visa and other documents, they weren't ready yet. He couldn't fly to Uruguay. It was getting worse and worse. Was Zuckers backing out? Had he realized he was being trapped? Or was he just being lazy? Mio had no idea what was going on, but he stayed in character, the character of the hard-charging businessman. He got angry and loud. How could you do this? And you say you want to be a businessman? I'm a businessman, and I stick to my word. You wrote me that all your papers were in order. I want you to know that I am very, very disappointed. He really was furious. If Zuckers couldn't get out of Brazil, the mission was off. There might not be a chance to organize a second operation before the vote in the German parliament. The butcher had messed up everything. Zuckers hung his head. He was embarrassed, or he appeared to be embarrassed. He promised it would never happen again. To Mio, he appeared to be sincere. After a few tense moments, Mio calmed down. He told Zuckers that Brazil was out. The partners wanted to do their business in Uruguay and Chile. So he wanted Zuckers with him when he traveled to the two countries. Mio took a wad of cash out of his pocket handed it to the butcher. Traveling expenses. He told the butcher to get his papers straightened out. Once that was done, he would pay for his flight to Uruguay. But he had to get moving. Zuckers cheered up. He agreed to get the visa ASAP. He was even a little cheeky. He asked if Mio had the addresses of the hotels they'd be staying at in Montevideo. Mio thought to himself, The bastard is forever cautious. But he'd memorized the names of the hotels just in case. He recited them to Zuckers, who wrote them down. It was another test. At least Mio had passed this one. A boarding announcement was made for Mio's flight to Buenos Aires. The two men parted. Mio slapped Zuckers on the shoulder, told him not to let him down again. Then he headed toward his departure gate. Mio landed in Buenos Aires took a taxi to his hotel. The rest of the team was still back in Paris. He needed to get in touch with them and tell them the mission was a go. But things started to go wrong. 
It turned out that the telephone and post office workers had gone on strike. It was one of those things you just couldn't predict, but it didn't matter. Mia was screwed. He couldn't communicate with Yariv. The team was waiting for word from him that Zuckers was still in play. But Mio couldn't make a call or send a telegram. He was stranded. Even worse, if the butcher was trying to contact him, he had no way of knowing it. Maybe Zuckers was having trouble getting the right papers. Maybe he had questions he needed answers to. Mio was annoyed and worried. Day after day, he'd check with the front desk and ask if any telegrams had come through. The answer was always no. The city was in a communications lockdown. Nothing was getting in or out. So Mia was going stir-crazy. He had nothing to do, and he hated that. To get his mind off Zuckers, he took a trip to a holiday resort called Mar del Plata. But it was off-season. The place was half-empty. Kind of depressing, actually. Mia went back to Buenos Aires and tried to pass the time by taking long walks through the city. There were no letters when he got back to the hotel. He was losing precious time. The clock was ticking, and Germany's vote on the amnesty statute was approaching fast. If the mission didn't move forward soon, all would be lost. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Stephen Talty, host of Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. The folks that helped me bring you this show, Diversion Podcasts, have just launched another podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Backstaged, The Devil in Metal, a deep dive into the history of metal music, filled with never-before-heard interviews and stories from some of the biggest names in music, including Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Van Halen, and many others. It's outrageous, raw, and surprising at times. Backstage, The Devil in Metal is out now. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, on February 5th, the strike ended, and a telegram arrived. It was from Zuckers. Glad to inform you that all the preparations are complete. I have the documents and the visa. Waiting to hear from you as to where and when I join you. Mia was overjoyed. He wrote out a telegram to the Mossad team in Paris. Negotiations have finished and the transaction is about to take place. Request you send urgently the team of experts in order to complete the transaction successfully. Anton. It was time for the team to come to Argentina. The Paris team started arriving in Buenos Aires, 
one by one, and taking the rooms in hotels downtown. Once they'd all made it in, Yarif sent out the word that they should meet one of the many cafes in the city. They would get the latest details from Mio and prepare for Uruguay. The men arrived at the cafe and shook hands. Then they sat down and Mio gave them an update, recounting the story of the movie camera and Sucre's continuing fear of being trapped. He warned them for the upteenth time about the butcher. He's like a wild animal. The minute he senses that he is trapped, he'll muster all his strength. This, it turned out, was actually true. Zuckers was preparing for his own flight to Uruguay. But before he left, he told his family. If someone comes after me, I will fight until the death. Mio didn't know this. He didn't know that Zuckers had passed the film of Kunzla arriving in Brazil to his wife. He knew Zuckers was paranoid, but he didn't know how deep it went. On February 10th, Mio flew into Montevideo, Uruguay and the others soon followed. The debate over the Statute of Limitations was only a month away now, in March. And then the vote would follow in May. The clock continued to tick, and the team still didn't have a house to carry out the execution. That was the first objective as they did their final preparations. But once they settled into their hotels, the team realized there was a problem. The city didn't have that many houses for rent. Montefideo was a small place, not a lot of tourists, and the houses that were available were often run down. Laser Sudit, the agent who tried to kill the German chancellor 10 years before, was given the job of finding a place. He had three requirements. It had to look like it could be the headquarters for a rich European company. It had to have some sort of privacy so the noise of the assassination wasn't overheard. And it had to be close to a major highway so that the team could escape without getting lost in a tangle of side streets. Sudit contacted some real estate agents. Every day, he went looking at houses with them. And he slowly realized there was nothing that fit his three requirements. Either the houses looked terrible, or they had no privacy. Or they were in a part of the city it was hard to get out of. The team thought they'd planned for everything. But it was Murphy's Law. If something could go wrong, it would. Days passed. Finally, a real estate agent called Sudit. He was in a good mood. He told Sudit he'd found the perfect place. The two of them drove out to see it. When they pulled up to the house, Sudit was happy. From the street, the place looked good. It had a garden, and it was in good shape. They walked up to the front door, and the agent rang the bell. As soon as the door opened, Sudit's heart dropped. The guy standing in the doorway had side curls. He was wearing a yarmulke. Sadiq realized he was an Orthodox Jew. Sadiq cursed under his breath. The homeowner smiled and invited the two men in. But Sadiq, he just turned, walked down the path, and got into the car. If they rented the house from this guy and Zuckers was killed inside, who knew what would happen? Some neo-Nazis might firebomb the place. Or the homeowner and his family could become targets for nutjobs in the city. So, it was a no. Sudit couldn't risk it. It was the right house, but the wrong owner. The real estate agent got back into the car. He was mortified. Probably angry, too. He asked Sudit what was wrong. 
Sadiq said, I don't like Jews. His son told me the story when I visited him in Israel. He says it reflects his father's very dark sense of humor. He was always doing things like that. It was just part of his personality. But despite Sudit's joke, it was a bad day. The team still had no place to carry out the final act. And they were running out of time. They were hitting a wall. They looked all over Carrasco, a desirable part of Montevideo with nice vacation homes near the ocean that would look good. But it was the middle of summer and there was nothing available. Things were getting desperate. Then, finally, a stroke of luck. The realtor found a place. In all the Mossad reports I've seen, it has always been described as a house in Carrasco, in Montevideo. But the Uruguayan writer Fernando Budizoni told me that Mossad's reports aren't exactly correct. The house they ended up with was actually located somewhere else, in another nearby town called Shangri-La, which was not the original plan. They had not uh, option because uh, they wished to rent a house in the city, but they can't. And uh, Carrasco was and is now high-level neighborhood. Shangri-La was a poor town, and Shangri-La is outside the city, outside. It's not in Montevideo, and Carrasco is a part of Montevideo. There are two different realities. And you cross pine forests two or three miles, and after that, you go to Shangri-La. It's also in, in, in an isolated area. In, in a block, you have uh, two or three houses. In summer, in, in winter, it's absolutely empty. The house was small and humble, and a little house, not a luxury house. This was the only house available. Sadi thought it had potential. The house wasn't in the best shape, but it might work. One thing that bothered him, though, was that there were some construction workers fixing the house next door. If they heard a disturbance on the day of the assassination, they might come looking for the cause. Or they might call the police. But Sudit was running out of options. He brought Mio out to get his opinion. And after a few minutes of looking the place over, Mio agreed. There was nothing better. It would have to do. There's another curious detail that I only uncovered in my most recent research. In Mossad reports, they always refer to the house as Casa Cubertini. But when I spoke to Budizoni, who knows the country like the back of his hand and actually grew up in Shangri-La, he told me there's no record of the house ever being called that in Uruguay. The, the Casa Cubertini, that is named in the statement of Mossad, do not exist, never exists. That name never existed. When I asked Budizoni to speculate about where Mossad got the name from, he was at a loss. I don't know. Maybe a confusion. I, I don't know. My, my research was very intensive and difficult. And I looking in archives and in libraries. Cubertini, you know, do not exist in Uruguay. 
So it remains a bit of a mystery. But for whatever reason, maybe it was a code name, the kill team called the final location they decided on Casa Cubertini. And then the team was suddenly very busy. Now that they had a location, they had to prepare. The five men drove from one end of the city to the other, memorizing its layout. They drove the streets around Casa Cubertini, finding the best ways in and out. They studied how polite and patient Uruguayans were when they drove. And anyone who spent time in Israel knows how foreign this style of driving would be to an Israeli. Former Mossad agent Avner Avraham put it like this. Well, in Israel, you know, people are very nervous. They are very nervous and they don't want to wait. Well, it's like, uh, who teach you to drive like this? You don't know how to drive, okay? You need to learn again. Uh, but you know, sometimes it's not only to say something against the other driver. Sometimes you stand near his car and you open your window and you need to educate him. Why you don't this and why you don't this and you have to keep the right and why you keep the left and okay, you need to educate him and teach him. It might seem small, but the team needed to learn to keep their Israeli habits in check. This meant no aggressive driving, no road rage. They didn't want to stand out. Yariv had warned them that they had to avoid police attention at all costs. So they always kept to the speed limit. Yariv even brought in someone from the Foreign Service, already stationed in South America, to serve as an advisor. He wasn't trained with the team, but he knew the language and could also function as a lookout on the big day. Mio sent a telegram to Zuckers. Dear Herbert, business running well, your help needed. I'll be glad if you could join me in Montevideo on the morning of February 23. That was the date that Yariv had chosen. The 23rd was his birthday, and he considered it his lucky number. He didn't want any more bad luck. Maybe this would help. The next day, there was a reply from Zuckers. Dear Anton, arriving by Varig flight on the 23rd. A few hours later, another telegram arrived, changing the airline from Varig to Air France. But the butcher was coming. The men made their final plans. Mio rented Zuckers a room in his hotel, even though, if all went according to plan, he would never sleep in it. He read the newspapers each and every morning, looking for anything that would interfere with the mission. A road closing, a parade, anything. And after a few days, he found one. One of the streets they were going to use for the escape would be closed for repairs. The men jumped in their cars and found an alternate route. Sudit went shopping. He visited the local luggage stores looking for something to put Zucker's body in. They didn't want to leave the corpse just lying on the floor of the Casa Cubertini. But the butcher was so big, nothing that Sudit saw would fit. Finally, he found a store selling those huge traveling trunks that people back in the day used when they sailed to the other side of the world. He pulled a tape measure out of his pocket, got the dimensions. He asked if there was anything bigger. The salesman said no. So Sadid bought it. 
According to former intelligence officer Chris Costa, lining up every detail of the escape is just as important as executing the mission itself. It's easy to plan, and everybody likes tactics. Everybody likes talking about tradecraft. The harder part is to talk about what comes after. So you have to think about the end state of what you want and then work it backwards. That's part of planning an operation. Mio paid the hotel and rental car bills in advance. He didn't want any last minute complications there. He even bought two tickets for a flight to Chile, which he and Zuckers would never take. It was like method acting. Everything had to appear to be real, so he did everything as if it was real. For their final meeting, before the butcher arrived, the men chose a restaurant that Mio had been to before on one of his trips with Zuckers. They sat at a table and began talking in low voices. They didn't want to attract attention. They didn't look like a band of assassins. If you spotted them having their drinks and chatting, you might think they were middle managers or insurance agents. As they were talking, the waiter walked up. Shalom, he said in Hebrew. He told the five men that he was originally from Hungary, but had served in the Israeli Defense Forces. He'd heard them speaking Hebrew, and he'd come over to greet his fellow Jews. The men looked at each other and broke out laughing. They thought they were being discreet, but here they'd been outed by a Hungarian waiter. They lowered their voices even further and talked about the 23rd. On the night of the 22nd, Mio went to bed early. He said he wanted to recharge his batteries for what was coming. The crucial day, judgment day. Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by Stephen Tolte. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein, with editorial direction from Scott Waxman and Mangesh Hatikadur. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. With the voices of Nick Afka Thomas, Omri Angle, Andrew Polk, Mindy Escobar Leantz, Steve Routman, and Stefan Brudnitsky. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.